Hey there, how you doing? My name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of 6-8 Church here in Vancouver, Washington. What you're about to hear is a message from our Sunday morning gathering, and we hope it encourages and inspires you on your journey to be more like Christ. For more information about 6-8 Church, visit 6-8church.com. That's the number 6 and the number 8 church.com. And we, uh, we get to talk about a really difficult question this morning, uh, one that I have tried and avoided my, most of my time as a pastor. I don't like talking about it. I don't like uh, even mentioning it. I think uh, there's a lot of damage that's been done to Christianity in, this, in the name of this topic. And uh, if, I don't know where you grew up, but I grew up in the Midwest, and uh, you know, there's a lot of what we called hellfire and brimstone preaching uh, in the Midwest. Um, someone sent me a clip this week of what, uh, what is supposed to be hellfire and brimstone preaching, and uh, it wasn't. What, uh, what is hellfire and brimstone preaching that I grew up with in uh, the Bible Belt is very, I mean, preaching red in the face, screaming and shouting, spitting to the second row and pounding the pulpit, you know, using hell as a tool to manipulate people into making a decision for Christ, which uh, usually never works out very well. People tend not to continue on in their faith when they make those decisions. And so I've kind of probably overreacted and not talked about hell as much as we should. But this morning we're dealing with the topic of hell. Why or um, how could a good, loving, and gracious God send people, send a good person to hell? Would a good, loving, and gracious God really send a good person to hell? We've already covered, you know, in the course of this series, the idea of good and evil. And uh, if there is such a thing as good, then we have to be willing to admit that there must be evil. If there, if there's good, then there must be a counter to that, right? That that if there's evil, then there's good. If there's good, then there's evil. There's a higher moral order. We don't like to admit that, but there must be, if we recognize the fact that there is good and evil in the world. But how would it, why would a, a good, loving, and gracious God send someone, a good person, to hell? It's a hard question. But how do we really know the difference between good and evil? I mean, is it merely just someone's actions and behaviors? I mean, are someone's actions bad or evil? Are someone's actions and behaviors good? I mean, what if the person intended to do something good, but they're unintentionally, they unintentionally did something evil? And what if they did something good, but they had evil intentions? What if the reason that they were doing the good thing was a selfish motive? Or is that still a good thing? Is that still a good action? Or is that a bad action and behavior? How do we know the difference between good and evil, especially when we get to the level of motives and intentions? Who decides then in these situations if someone deserves to be punished. If somebody does something good with bad intentions, do they deserve to be punished? If someone does something bad with good intentions, do they deserve to be punished? Who judges? Who decides? To take it one step further, 
not just who judges good and bad actions, not just who judges the intentions of someone who does something good or who does something bad, who judges the judges, right? Who, who judges the people who are judging? When someone is convicted of a crime, they have to pay a penalty for that crime, right? We understand that basically how our, that's basically how our society works. If you do something wrong and you get caught, society is probably going to expect that you pay for that crime. But what about when someone pays for a crime that they did not commit? So he's wrongly convicted. We know that that happens. We know it happens from time to time. You can actually do some research online and discover that there are several people who have been charged with murder and and uh, the, the penalty was to spend life behind bars and then after spending more than even 17 years, 30, 40, 50 years, they were released. What do we do in this kind of situation? What do we do, what's right and wrong? What's good and evil in this situation? And what if now in this situation the judge that made this conviction against John has died and isn't able to make the situation right? How, how do we give the judge the opportunity to make the situation right for justice? Or, or if there is someone on the jury that convicted him that has died and doesn't get the opportunity to bring justice to the wrong they've committed, what do we do in that situation? I mean, they wrongfully took away someone's life. Shouldn't they have to pay for the wrong they committed? Isn't that what justice is? I mean, they wrongfully convicted, uh, the wrongfully convicted sometimes sue the state for being wrongfully convicted and win a sum of money, but that sum of money doesn't come from the people who wrongfully convicted the man. It comes from the taxpayers who were indirectly involved but not directly involved in the case, and maybe they would have chosen differently if they were on the journey. That's not right either, right? I mean, the person who made the mistake should be the person that pays for the mistake that they made, but what if that isn't possible? How do we actually find justice in these situations? Even when you do your best to follow right and wrong as it's laid out in Scripture, justice can be a very complicated issue. If there is such a thing as good, then there must be such a thing as evil. But what do we do? What about when evil, when we do evil with good intentions or when we do good with evil intentions? We ourselves. What about when we do evil with good intentions or we do good with evil intentions? For us as believers, there are times when we know that we don't live up to God's standards. On our own, we know that we're not good enough, right? This is, this is kind of a part of the foundational aspect of the gospel. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11 says, No one is righteous, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So we, even, even in Christianity, even with our faith in Christ, we know that, that uh, we, on, left on our own, have problems. Makes justice and judgment difficult. Judgment is difficult because our perspective is limited. 
our perspective is finite. Right? Even judges, the justices who sit on the Supreme Court seats and have memorized literally thousands of cases which they will use to give them perspective in the cases that they have to decide are still extremely limited in scope and their ability to judge without being affected by their own beliefs, their own understanding, and their own motives. We know this right now because there's been there's such a hotly contested, you know, you know, potential seat that might come up when somebody dies in the near future. And I don't even know who it is, but you know, you know, and there's all this concern between the two political parties about who's going to be the person that gets to decide who fills that seat because we understand that the justices that are in these seats aren't making decisions in a completely unbiased way. They're supposed to. That's supposed to be what the judges do, but we know that that's not the reality. Who then gets to decide if the intentions, right? We talked about our intentions and if our intentions are good or bad and, the, and our intentions in doing things and causing harm to other people. But then who decides if the judges' intentions when they're judging are good or bad, right or wrong? If the intentions of the one who is deciding right and wrong are wrong and they make a wrong judgment, who holds the judge accountable for their judgment? And if the intentions of the one who is deciding right and wrong are right, but they make the wrong judgment, who determines whether they should be held accountable for their actions or their intentions? It's a difficult question. Would a good, loving, and gracious God really send a good person to hell? But I think the question actually has some problems. First, it assumes that, that we are able to judge our own actions and our own intentions so that we can balance the scale in our favor before we die. But a good, loving, gracious God really send a good person to hell assumes that in the, over the course of our lives, we are able to balance out our actions and our intentions in such a way that by the time we die, the scale tips in the favor of doing more good than bad. But the most unbiased person is still biased and unbiased about ourselves. We have very limited ability to judge ourselves in a just way. Right? We, we think we should be able to do a certain amount of good, and if we do a certain amount of good, that should get us away from hell and towards heaven. But we're very limited in our ability to judge ourselves in a just way, because we're biased. And we're going to assume that we are good. We're going to think that we're on the good side even though we cause intentional and unintentional harm to others. And we have no real way of, of balancing out how much pain and harm we've caused to others because we're biased and assume our intentions were good. We may think we're good, but we cause harm. By our own standards, we're good, but 
others, we assume, are evil. Or by our standards, we are good, but by others' standards, we're evil in their eyes. So who decides which person is right? Who decides what right and wrong we're going to go with? This is an incredibly difficult topic for us right now in the world that we live in because everyone seems to have a different definition of what is right and what is wrong. So if you, if you multiply that out by the millions, who decides between two people who think they have the right and the wrong and what is the truth and what is not the truth and, and what is really the thing they're going to live by? Who decides when they are in conflict with one another which one is right and which one is wrong. The only solution is to have someone outside of the situation. Someone who's outside of the situation who can judge both the action and the intention. Right? We have to have a judge who is outside of the situation who can judge both the action and the intention. Right? Not just what was done, but the motive. We have to have a judge who is outside of the situation, who is wise enough to know the difference between actual good and actual evil. Wise enough to know the difference. We have to have a judge who is also powerful enough to separate their own emotions and intentions from the situation so that their decision is not skewed by their own motives. And we have to have a judge who is capable of making things right. right? If you don't have the ability, if you don't have the power or the authority to make things right, then you can't actually bring justice. You can make a, what you would say is a just decision, but if you don't have the power to make things right, you're not really a good judge. This is why I think Jesus makes such a strong argument against being people who judge. Judgment should be reserved, must be reserved for the judge who exists outside of our human limitations. Judgment must be reserved for the judge who exists outside of our human limitations. There's a lot of judgment being thrown around the world right now. But we need to relieve ourselves of that duty and let God be the judge. Luke chapter 6, verse 37 and 38. We shared this, this last week on the podcast and in the devotional. But Jesus is talking and he says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured out in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Think about the judgments you've made against someone in your life. And the measure that, of the judgment that you used against someone else, now having that same measure of judgment being poured out on you. Judgment needs to be reserved to the judge who is outside of our human limitations. Judgment needs to be reserved for the judge who is able to judge both actions and intentions. We may be able to judge someone's actions, and we may be able to come up with a, 
with a law system that can judge someone's actions, but we cannot judge someone's intentions. But God can. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So God is able to judge both action and intent. So we need to let him be the judge. Judgment needs to be reserved, must be reserved for the judge who is not biased by their own intentions. Numbers 23 verse 19 says that God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is not a human that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. He, he does not, is not restricted by our human intentions and our human understandings and our flawed human reasoning. He's not a human being. So judgment should be reserved for God. Judgment must be reserved for the judge who is truly unbiased in his goodness. Psalm 145, verse 9, The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Exodus 34, 6, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. In 1 Chronicles 16.34, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Judgment must be reserved for the judge who is truly unbiased in his goodness, because he will not withhold his goodness based on some kind of prejudice. He is not restricted like we are in that way. Judgment must be reserved for the judge who has the ability to make things right. Judgment must be reserved for the judge who has the ability to make things right. This one isn't on the screen because it's kind of long, but let me read it for you. You've probably heard parts of it. Romans 3:21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justify those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? 
It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is, is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. There is only one God who will justify. Judgment must be reserved for the judge who has the ability to make things right. There is only one God who can justify sinners, and he should be the only one that gets to make the judgment. See, God is the righteous judge who determines true right and true wrong. I think we're okay to that point. We, we understand that God is the righteous judge who determines true right and true wrong and pays the price in himself to justify those who turn to him. So God is not only righteous in determining true right and wrong, but he, because he is the righteous judge, has the ability to make things right, and so he pays the price in himself to make things right, to justify those who turn to him. God can judge because he has the ability to justify the debt. We can't. He can justify the debt, but we can't. So I think part of the reason we have a problem with the idea of hell, part of the reason I have a struggle with the idea of hell is because I am an inconsistent person and I am an inconsistent judge. Right? I see things that I think are wrong that go unpunished. I see things that I think are right that go unrewarded and unnoticed. But then amongst us, what one person thinks is right, another person in this room would think is wrong. And if we are inconsistent, then we shouldn't be judging. We have a problem with hell because we're inconsistent judges. In fact, I would argue that our problem with hell is actually a problem with God. We have a problem with God that gives us a problem with hell because we don't really trust that God will actually do the right thing. We don't think that God will make the right judgment in the end, which makes us judges of God and his justice. We're judging and determining if what God is doing is right or wrong. That's problematic. So the question, would a good, loving, and gracious God really send a good person to hell, has some problems. Whose definition of good, whose definition of loving, whose definition, definition of gracious are we using? Are we using yours, are we using mine, or are we using God's? We have a problem with hell because we have a problem with being judged by anyone other than ourselves. 
We have a problem with hell because we have a problem with being gracious. If someone wrongs us, we think that they should have to pay for that wrong, even if they are repentant. We have a problem with hell because we have a problem with forgiveness. We don't think that we should have to pay for crimes we legitimately regret having committed. If we are remorseful and if we regret having done them and we seek forgiveness, we think we should not have to pay for those crimes. But we think others should have to pay for their crimes even if they regret them. Do we have a problem with hell because we have a problem submitting to God's judgment? We have a problem with hell because we have a problem letting God be the righteous judge. We have a problem with good and evil because we have a problem with God's good and evil. We want our definition of good and evil to be the defining understanding of good and evil. But that takes us all the way back to the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, the serpent says to Eve, You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one you're not supposed to eat of, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Wisdom is knowing the difference between good and evil. So Eve could see, that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Eve could see that eating the fruit was desirable. It was desirable to eat the fruit to gain wisdom, to gain the knowledge between good and evil. And when she saw that, she took some and ate it. She wanted to be able to be the judge. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. He wanted to be the judge. We have a problem with hell because we have a problem submitting to God's judgment. From the book this week, Becky Pipert, in her book, this is a quote from a quote, her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, she says, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. There's a problem in the human race. The cancer in the human race is rebellion. We want to do things our own way. We want our own definitions of good and evil. And that is the cancer that is destroying the human race from the inside out. And God, being a God who is not only just, but a God of love, does not want even those who have embraced the lies of our own judgment to be victims of the cancer. So his wrath is not, uh, you know, is not against us as people, it's against the cancer that we have embraced 
In fact, James chapter 117 says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Everything good that every human has ever had, that has ever existed, that what they, anything good that any human has ever known has all come from God. Everything good that every human that has ever existed has ever known has all come from good. Everything good comes from God. The evil that we know is a result of our rebellion against God, which is the cancer that God must deal with. If God does not deal with the cancer of our rebellion, he is not good or just. But the cancer of our rebellion has created some problems. Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And something we've probably heard many times, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin, the wages of rebellion, the wages of embracing the cancer that is destroying the human race, the, the cost, the punishment, the, the penalty that must be paid, the judgment that's issued against us for having embraced the rebellion of sin is death. That is the toll that must be paid. That is the cost that must be extracted in exchange for our embracing the cancer. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as it is true that God is a righteous judge who must fairly deal with our sins. That is a true statement. God is a righteous judge who must fairly deal with our sins. It is equally true that God is a gracious God who, because he has the power as the righteous judge, does not treat us as our sins deserve. Just as it's true that God is a righteous judge who must fairly deal with our sins, it is equally true that God is a gracious God who, because he has the power as the righteous judge, does not treat us as our sins deserve. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not accuse nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He is just, but he is gracious. Perhaps one of my top five favorite verses in all of Scripture, Romans 5, 8, says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Going on, it says, since 
we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Christ? Now, having been justified, now that justice has been paid by the blood of Christ in our place, how much more shall we now be saved from God's wrath through Christ? God dealt with the cancer of our rebellion by pouring out his wrath on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And because that price was now ex ex you know, taken out from Jesus on the cross, now grace is poured on us. And even though we were God's enemies, we have been reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? From the book, it says, the biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God, which is the source of all joy and indeed of all love, wisdom, or good things of any sort. Sin separates us from the presence of God, and God is the source of all joy, of all love, wisdom, or good of any sort. If we were, he goes on to say, if we were to lose his presence, God's presence totally, that would be hell. The loss of our capability for giving or receiving love or joy. We know how selfishness and self-absorption leads to piercing bitterness, nauseating envy, paralyzing anxiety, paranoid thoughts, and then mental details and distortions that accompany them. Hell, then, is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, a self-centered life going on and on forever. Hell is embracing our rebellion through eternity and the cost of embracing that rebellion is the removal, the absence of the presence of God's love, joy, and goodness. C.S. Lewis says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. All God does in the end with people is give them what they most want, including freedom from himself. What could be more fair than that? God lets us choose. God lets us make the choice whether we will worship him or not. God lets us make the decision if we are going to embrace the truth or embrace the lie. And in the end, all that God does is let us decide. What's more fair than giving us the freedom to make that decision? See, hell is eternally embracing our rebellion against God and the consequences of our rebellion. Hell is an eternity completely devoid of any of the good things that come from God, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hell is an eternity without any of that. Just like we can't fathom a life completely devoid of these things right now, we cannot fathom a life 
Without love, we can't fathom a life right now without joy of any kind, without peace of any kind, completely absent of patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We can't imagine a life without these things because these are gifts from God and His goodness towards the entire human race so that we might see His goodness and be drawn into His love. Just like we can't fathom a life completely devoid of these things, an eternity without them is so far beyond our comprehension, our response is to generally say, because I cannot understand it, it must not exist. Romans chapter 15, verse 56 and 57 says, the sting of death is sin. We sing about this just a few minutes ago. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like we cannot fathom a life completely devoid of these things, even though we deserve death because of our sin, God is gracious and does not treat us as our sins deserve. Even though we do not deserve and we cannot fathom, we cannot comprehend an eternity that is only God's love, only God's joy, only God's peace, only God's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, even though we cannot fathom an eternity where that is the only existence we know and is completely devoid of anything that is opposite of that, God, who is rich in mercy, gives us what we don't deserve. So I think instead of asking God why he sends people to hell, we might ask him why he allows anyone to go to heaven. Heaven is God's eternity. It's where we will spend an eternity in the presence of God. An eternity in the presence of perfect Holiness. God is not just pure in the sense that he is absent of sin, but when we are in the presence of God, we are in the presence of complete and perfect holiness. A holiness and all-consuming fire of God's holiness that is so consuming, any impurity is consumed in its presence. So God's being in God's presence requires us to be without sin because if we come into God's presence, that sin will be dealt with in us in the process. But God in Jesus Christ has dealt with our sin. See, if God, if he, if God were only just, we would be completely excluded from his presence forever for even one rebellious act. If God were just, because the wages of sin is death, the wages of even one sin, the wages of even the cost of even one rebellious act is death, 
if God were only just, then God's response to that one act of rebellion would be to punish us forever in the absence of his presence. But God is not only just, God is also eternally gracious. And he forgives a lifetime, not just one instance, but a lifetime of rebellion against him. Instead of, though, taking out his wrath on the cancer that we created against us by taking our life in payment for our rebellion, what God, the righteous judge, did was he took out his wrath on his son, who never embraced the cancer of rebellion. So it's really astounding that that God is so gracious. If God is just, he is just as gracious, and he pours out his grace on us. So when you find yourself wrestling with hell, when you find yourself wrestling with the idea that God would send someone to hell, what if instead of asking why he would send someone to hell, we would ask why he would pay such a price so that we would no longer be separated from him by our sin and we could spend an eternity in his presence. God, why would you pay such a price so that we would no longer be separated from you and our, our sin would cause that separation and allow us to spend an eternity in your presence? I think the answer to that question is love.